Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 2. There's one verse there in chapter 2 that I want to accent as the springboard text for this message, which again, I've given the title, Leaving Christianity to Find Christ. In verse 7, we're taught and told to be rooted and built up in him, that's Jesus, and established in the faith. That means you're firm, as you have been taught, and abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, he says in verse 8, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now that's all we're going to need for our introduction today to this message, leaving Christianity to find Christ or to follow Christ. I shared with a friend of mine just two days ago this very thought with some other things that I'm not going to mention here publicly, but it is a tongue-in-cheek statement. It is not necessarily what I'm really trying to say. I'm using a hyperbolic expression, leaving Christianity, in order to establish the point that the one, as we read here all through the book, that our faith is to be established in one person, not in any traditions that we've received, other than the two traditions, water baptism and the communion service that we have here each week. Other than that, traditions are negotiable, and there are plenty of them in Christianity that ought to be abolished. I won't go through that so much that I don't believe I'm going to name the ones that I think should be done away with. I am going to say this. History has shown us that there is a lot of our own addition or deletion from the book that is taken away from our faith in him. Jesus, as you know, is a person. He's not simply a doctrine, not simply a teaching. He's a person. And in particular, the Bible tells us unequivocally that he is God come in the flesh. So simply put, we are to have our faith in God and not in men or the traditions of men. It's interesting as we do look at history, and one would expect, for those of you, and there's many of you here, you're biblically literate, you have spent time in the Bible, you know the Bible. It's interesting when you look at Christian history to see how low it has sunk at times. And one case is notable in the life of a man by the name of Thomas Lincare. Thomas Lincare was a physician and the physician to King Henry VII, King Henry VIII, He's also the founder of the Royal College of Physicians in Great Britain, Thomas Lincare. But somewhere near the end of his life, he took some vows in Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church. And with his vows, he was handed for the very first time in his life. So this is the 15th century and the 16th century. He lived near the end of the 15th and into the 16th century. He took these vows and it was handed to him a copy of the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And always remember, it's not Gospels. Only one Gospel. The accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and of John account for one Gospel. And so Thomas Lincare began to read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At the same time, he was living through some of the darkest periods of the church with regard to Roman Catholicism. He was taking vows and went into whatever order he went into. I forget what it was. During the period of Alexander VI, one of the Borgia popes, 
Alexander VI was an exceptionally wicked individual. He fathered four children out of wedlock. This is the Pope, Alexander VI, Borgia Pope. If you know anything about the Borgias. There was murder, there was incest, bribery, all types of corruption at the very, very top when Thomas Lincare took his vows. And that was my very thought. Same as today. Same as today. I know because I've dealt with it personally. In any case, this is what Lincare had to say after reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, either these are not the Gospels, those are his words, plural, either these are not the Gospels, or we are not Christians. That's pretty, pretty wise. By the way, that's the same thing that happened to Martin Luther when he was forced to teach the Bible, which he didn't want to do. And then as he began to read, he was astonished of how little the church exemplified the things that are written in the Bible, in the book. Thomas Lincare, his words once again, either these are not the Gospels, Gospel, or we are not Christians. See, that's what will happen to anybody who takes a careful look at the Bible and reads it slowly. And you start to come to conclusions if you're, forgive me, you're intelligent and a bit courageous. First to examine yourself and say, either this is not the Bible written by God or I'm not really a Christian. Or you start to apply it to the church, wherever a church branch of the church may be found, where people claim to be Christians. Now, being ordained, as Lincare was, remember he's a physician to Henry VII and Henry VIII, and being under the authority of a wicked, wicked Borgia Pope, the Borgia family. To come to that conclusion is intelligent. Examining the church at the time, 15th, 16th century, which, by the way, was right at the birth of the Reformation and why the Reformation was born. In other words, Alexander VI was a leading cause of why people began to look at the Bible and say, what did Jesus really say? What did the Apostle Paul say? What did the prophets say? He made, I wouldn't call it an astute observation, just made a very simple observation. Either this is not the word of God, or we're not Christians. And I'm finding after all these years of reading and teaching and preaching and all that I've done, the Bible seems as though almost like it's taking a turn on me. And I'm seeing things very clearly challenging my own life, let alone those that I teach or those who listen. The church has been through some very dark periods in its history, of which I believe right now we are in one. As we use the expression, lots of talk, no walk. It's easy to say you're something, but it's a whole lot better to prove it. No matter what you do, it's a lot better to just do it than to talk about doing it or say you do it. And so I want to present to you this idea that's completely my own, leaving Christianity to find Christ. Now, what I mean by that as applied to myself only, how it applies to you, you can talk that over later with your Lord. But for me, I see so much that is putting it charitably that needs to be desired. When I read the book and I see what I would present to you as blatant contradictions to simple doctrines. I mean, they're simply put. And so we have it. I have often said, and I have said it here publicly, and I have certainly said it privately to people, that I'm all done with Christianity. And then I have to explain that. Am I an atheist? Of course not. Am I agnostic? No, I'm not. I know whom I've believed. 
What I mean is I'm jettisoning all the superfluous things that have absolutely, A, nothing to do with the gospel, or B, is anti-biblical. I have nothing to do with that. I have made up my mind that no matter what the outcome may be, from my own decisions made for myself and only for myself, I don't concern myself with that. I want to be able to meet the Lord and say I've been faithful to the word. I've been faithful to say what it says. So with this in mind, we look at some things here, and it has been said about difficulties in general. For instance, if you read in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, and you see that God, who has been promising for hundreds of years that he's going to bring Israel into a good land, and the people say, well, we want to go and have a report. We want to see what it's like. So we'll send out some, the Bible calls them spies. In the military, they would call reconnaissance. Let's go out and see what it's about, this great land that God says. And so 12 of them go out, and they all agree on one thing. All 12 of them agree on one thing. It's a good land. It's very fruitful. However, 10 of them say, there's giants in the land, and we can't beat them. And so they begin to upset the entire congregation of Israel. Men and women are going back to their tents, weeping and crying. Because of the report of 10 of those 12 reconnaissance individuals, spies, weeping and crying and complaining against Moses. Now, they've already had a rough trip up to this point, yet it's going to get rougher still after this incident. It's a good land. Yeah, it's a good land, but there's giants in the land. So somebody has stated this, his name is Keith Brooks, that unbelief looks at God through a difficulty and faith looks at the difficulty through the eyes of God. We have 10 men who saw nothing but the problems, giants, walled cities like Jericho. And you know what happened to Jericho. They saw the problems. They didn't have faith in God. I would put it this way to you, that God did tell the truth that the land is good, but God didn't say there's giants. And this is stated if you read Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And we cannot overcome them. We cannot. So I think the words, when it comes to difficulties in general, written by Keith Brooks, unbelief looks at God through the difficulty. Whereas faith looks at the difficulty through the eyes of God. Because there's two of them that says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. They're bread for us. We'll eat them up. And it wasn't because they were so imposing. They were a group of slaves. A massive group of slaves. Millions of them. It wasn't because they were imposing or they were so courageous. Remember, they even gave Moses a hard time about leaving Egypt. I mean, we would write history to say every slave who has an opportunity to be freed wants to be freed. That, I think, has been generally the case. But when they realize they're going from a land that's fairly prosperous at that time before the ten plagues hit into a wilderness where they don't know where they're going, they don't know what to expect, they don't know where they're going to get their food, their water, which was their experience. They exhibit an unbelief that basically, I would put it this way, it was just an insult to God. But Joshua and Caleb, they said, we are well able to overcome them. God is on our side. So I want to do this. I want to substitute the word difficulty with tradition. Are you looking at God through the eyes of a tradition? Bowing and gesticulating and doing all types of spiritual, mental gymnastics. Recognizing that certain traditions are good. Because I'm not here to tell you that all traditions are bad. Most preachers won't. 
I'm just saying there's two ways of looking at God in Christianity and within Christianity. I'll put it to you this way. One is through the eyes of tradition or traditions, and one is through the eyes of the Word of God, the Bible. Two ways, and only two ways. Through the book, this is what it says, or as the Apostle Paul would say on several occasions, what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? The writings. That's how he knew Christ, other than his personal visitation. That's how the prophets knew God, and that's how we want to know Christ. What does the Bible say? And so, in the end, 40 years later, that entire generation of Jewish people perished in the wilderness, walking around in circles for 40 years. And I've told you this story before, but let me say it to you again. Well, I heard a story, and I assumed it was true, but even, not, even if it wasn't true, it has a good application, of a man who was boasting that he spent 40 years in the ministry. I've been in the ministry for 40 years. And a friend of his set the record straight. He said, you haven't been in the ministry for 40 years. You've been in the ministry for one year, 40 times. Now, taking that story, whether it's true or not, think to yourself, however long you've been in the Lord, however short or long, have you been in the Lord for 10 years, 15, 20, 25, 30, whatever it is, actually making progress? Andrei Segovia described his life this way. He says it was a slowly ascending line. Is your life in Christ a slow ascending line or you just walk around in circles 40 times the same thing? That's what Israel did eventually after God said, you're not going in. So if there was anybody, it's not recorded that there was, but if there was anybody in Israel who says, you know, I've been walking with the Lord for 40 years, part of that we could say is true. But the other and more applicable observation is that they walked in circles 40 times and didn't go anywhere. Now listen to me. This unfortunately describes the life of many professing Christians. Again, five years, 10 years, three years, 30 years, doesn't matter. You want to make sure that your life in the Lord is a slow ascending line. That you're going forward with the Lord. And I'm proposing to you on just one subject, but really the point is following Christ. That traditions, whoever has made them up, are not necessarily bad, but they become bad when they obscure our vision of Christ through the word. Ask yourself the question, have I been making progress over these so many decades or years? Or have I been in one place just going around like this? 20 times, 30 times, 40 times, five times. You want to keep pressing forward to know and to find Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Leaving Christianity. It's a deliberate exaggeration, both of my personal stand and yours as well, I suppose. But I want you to see something here that Jesus had to say about vain traditions. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Now, notice the word tradition. For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God hath commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother, which you would recognize as the fifth commandment of the ten. And he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. That's what the book says. But you say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever 
you may be profited by me and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. In other words, he's free from that commandment. And I'll explain this in a second. He's free from the commandment that God gave. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, you hypocrites. And I want to point out here, if you're watching my daily show, we're going through Matthew line by line. And how often Jesus does not mince his words. And you can look at the prophets, to the apostles. When it was time to speak the truth in a way that wasn't necessarily all that acceptable, they still spoke the truth. He says, you are hypocrites. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, the great majority of you are not going to start to pick up theology books and read them cover to cover. They're ponderous, they're thick, they're sometimes convoluted and difficult to get through just what these theologians are saying. That's my job. When I come here, though, I try to put it in the simplest terms possible so you understand. But what you can do to escape all of that work, which most of you don't have the time to do either, is simply read the word and see what God has said. This is the safest and the best way to know Christ. So looking at this here, this confrontation, which was frequent between Jesus and religious leaders, they want to know, why do your followers not wash their hands before they eat bread? Because the tradition was this. Now, we were brought up, supper is on, children are outside playing, and you come into the house, and your mother, or your father, or both, did you wash your hands? So you see, on the surface here, you say, what's wrong with that? Because this had nothing to do with cleanliness. It had to do with the tradition, that this is going to be a holy thing. And remember that I've told you this, and remember it's in the Bible, more importantly. God said, don't add to my word. Now, we would say it this way, but God, we're helping you, because these people have to live holy. So they added this, and they added that, and they added all these things, commandments to the commandments. But then eventually, it just flipped and turned around. Because what they did, if you look further here, where we just read, they had a tradition or a commandment. So a son, especially the oldest, was supposed to take care of his widowed mother. This is an example. And he has the resources to do that. But the Pharisee says, well, if you want to give your money to God, to the ministry, then you're exempt from taking care of your mother. It's okay. Huh? That's what they taught. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard that on television, on the radio, or in somebody's book? God says, take care of your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. Somebody comes along and says, well, if you do this for the church, you're exempt from that. And you're not exempt from that. He says, you make God's word vanity. It has no effect at all. So the poor mother is going to be stuck and the person is going to go home and say, Mom, we just got to pray because I just gave this over to God. Let me just tell you, give you even one example of what we're dealing with that's similar to this here today, where God becomes like a lottery ticket. Now here, I just mentioned to you about tithes and offerings. But you know, you've been around my ministry a long time. We've been on radio for 35 years. I never once asked anybody on the radio for money, not once. And people send money, and it's very kind to them. It really is. It certainly helps out. But this, let's say it's a young man. He's going to go home and tell his mother that, I can't take care of you. I gave it to God. But don't worry, because it's going to be multiplied four, five, six, seven times. And we hear this. 
Not specifically stated that way. But preachers who are basically con artists, so I won't call them preachers, I'll call them con artists, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter if you have your last dollar in the wallet, and they'll use a story like the widow's mite, where she gave out of her heart. She wasn't giving the last little two cents that she had so she could become a multimillionaire. She gave it because that's all that she had. That's everything that she had. And then we go through this whole thing that, quite frankly, is nauseating. We have, in Christianity, and we've had it from the beginning, as you see, it's already been written in Colossians. From the beginning, perversion of the word of God. The Apostle Paul would write, we are not amongst those, and I'll just paraphrase it for you, that pervert the word of God. When Thomas Lincare lived, and some of you who know your history will know that a Bible was never in the hands of an average Christian for hundreds of years. They didn't have what you have. They didn't have what we have. The only people that had a Bible, and usually were just little portions of a Bible, was the clergy. So you come in here, and we're going back, well, we're going back a long time. And you come in here, and you work your farm, or you work for someone who has a farm, or, you know, you may be a government official or whatever. But one thing you don't have, you don't have a Bible. The only one that has a Bible, and maybe that's just a part of a Bible, is the clergyman. It's the priest, it's the bishop, it's the preacher, whoever. But today, you have a Bible to look at it for yourself. You've got Bible applications, you've got commentaries, you've got every tool that you need to study the Word of God for yourself. And I understand because you're not in my position, you're not a teacher, you're not called to full-time ministry, but you'll get a lot out, and it will always go a long way to protect you to find Christ or follow Christ. So I use this phrase, leaving Christianity, Again, it's tongue-in-cheek, and it's a deliberate hyperbolic expression because this is what we have with men. They add things in order to help God, which, does God need any help? Now, forgive me, but just think about this when you pray. Does God need your counsel? Hey, God, we got problems down here. Does God say, we do? Well, I'm not saying that it's wrong because I talk to God that way, and I tell him my problems, and he already knows them, but... You tell him anyway. Um, God specifically wrote a book so that we could know him, that he reveals things to us that we could not know had he not revealed them. Some things we can know about God from nature and from natural theology. But so much we could not know unless God revealed it in the Bible. And I'm submitting to you that there are traditions, all kinds of traditions in Christianity across the board in every denomination, not all of which, once again, are bad, but you don't want that to become like difficulties where you're starting to see God through a tradition. You want to be able to see tradition through the lens and the eyes of God, just like your difficulties. So number one, we have what Jesus calls here a vain tradition, one that was just plain dishonest, but it was handed down. Wash your hands before you eat. Why, Dad, do you want me to be clean? Or Mom, do you want my hands clean? No, no, it's a tradition. And one that was religious in nature. And so they called Jesus on the carpet for that. Your disciples don't wash their hands. They don't keep the traditions of the elders. And that's when Jesus put them in their place. He says, you, you void the commands of God by your traditions. Vain traditions. By the way, in the text that I read to you, Colossians 2, verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, beware lest any man spoil you. What does that mean? We heard of the spoils of war. You win the war, you take the money. 
In some cases, they took the women. They took everything. That's what it means. Beware lest somebody robs you through philosophy. I'm just going to say this briefly. My library, I believe, has more books than the average pastor on systematic theology and other types of theology because I'm interested in knowing my subject so I can talk to you. Part of it is also so I understand where people are coming from. But in some cases, what I'm reading is not necessarily theology as much as it's philosophy with Christian verses and super big words, super lapsarianism. You all know what that means. Yeah. Well, it's part of what belongs to what we know as Calvinism. And to break it down, well, I'm kind of done with that too. See, I'm just a simple guy. Good looking, but simple. (laughs) And the text to me says what it says. And I don't find much difficulty in understanding what Jesus said here. I don't understand everything about the Bible. That's the truth. But then again, don't let anybody fool you. No one does. The greatest minds in the church today or of yesterday didn't understand everything. In any case, I'm a simple guy and I look at the text and this is what it says. And I find that much of the Bible is fairly simple to understand and you can understand it as well. But you don't want to be finding God through a tradition. And I have come face to face with that over and over again many, many times. I may have told you the story when I was on the chaplain staff seven years prison ministry. (laughs) I didn't have problems with the inmates. I had problems with the other ministers who belonged to a different denomination who had a mode of baptizing that we didn't use. According to their theology, that if I did not baptize people in the mode that they used, then they weren't saved. Then I was asked what mode was I baptized in? I said, well, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then the accusation came out that I wasn't saved. So let me just tell you something about this Irish boy. I'm not looking for the validation of man. I'm not looking for someone to say, you're really a Christian. I mean, if somebody says that to me, I'm happy, but it's just a bonus. I'm not looking for man to validate me. I'm not looking for someone to say, you know, you're a real preacher. I just want Jesus to validate the ministry that I took off the page of the book that the Holy Spirit wrote and just made it as applicable as possible and explained it as simple as possible. Thus, I come to this point, leaving Christianity to find Christ. Where do you find Christ? You find them on the pages of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 4 here and also Luke chapter 4, Jesus on the Mount of Temptation is confronted with the devil. And the devil says, if you're the son of God, make these stones become bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, remember this. Satan is no dummy. So the next temptation, he comes back with a scripture. Throw yourself off of the temple, for it is written. Now we have problems, because now we got to think. It is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they'll bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Then Jesus says, it is written again. Paraphrase it. Jesus said, you're misapplying the scripture. The scripture says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, nor put him to a foolish test. We will never have an evening service where I'm going to say to you, we're going to prove Mark chapter 16 by drinking deadly poison. So go back to your home and get me a few gallons of strychnine. We're going to drink it. We're going to sing. We're going to dance. We're going to chant and no one's going to die. 
Because that's not what Jesus meant, though that is in there. They shall drink deadly poisons, they shall not hurt them, snakes will bite them. Me, I don't like snakes, and if I happen to be around one and one bites me, I'll trust the Lord to heal me, but I'm not going to go antagonizing them to bite me and then pour down a few quarts of strychnine to show, see? That's what we call stupid. <laughs> the promise is there, but it's not meant to be misapplied. That's what was happening. Jesus was saying to Satan, you've misapplied the scripture. This does not mean that I'm supposed to tempt the Father. So you know the last one. Jesus has shown all the cities of the world which Satan has been given by permission dominion over them to this very day. To this very day. And he shows them all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I'll give you all this. You just bow down and worship me. And then Jesus answered, it is written again. My point and I brought this up to you just recently. If Jesus can say it is written, and the apostles said it is written, then why don't we say it is written? And B, as I preached to you a few weeks ago, a people of the book. You want to know Jesus? You got to be a person of the book. You got to know the book. That's what I mean by leaving Christianity, because sometimes as you're reading the book, you say, wait a second. See, I was the guy at a pastor's meeting, and they would be explaining something. I don't even necessarily mean the Bible, but something that belonged to the tradition of the church or the tradition. And I would raise my hand and say, well, excuse me, but how did we get there? And do you know, on several occasions, they always pin me as being divisive. So I'm not being divisive, I'm being inquisitive. I want to know how did we arrive at that conclusion, how that scripture applies to that, which it doesn't. Well, that's the way it goes. One of the complaints that are registered today, which I agree with, is that a lot of what we're hearing from the pulpit is either philosophical, even sometimes scientific, a dissertation on whatever, and not the preaching of the word of God. What the church needs now, has always needed and will need in the future, is what does the scripture say? So let me share this with you, because this is the one example I keep using over and over and over again. It seems to me, the more I'm reading the news, and I read it throughout the day as headlines come through, I read just enough to be informed, it seems to me that conditions are getting pretty bad. And when it comes, like for instance, to the economy, one of the things that's put out to white-bearded individuals like me is like, a couple more years, you're not gonna have any Social Security. The good news for me is I've always had Social Security. Amen. So I got Christ. But you know what? The good news for you is that you have it too. So I don't need to go on a Facebook rant because I never did trust man. Someone told me I don't trust this one and I don't trust that one. I don't trust this one. I said, I got you on that one. I don't trust anybody. No uh, insult intended. I trust God. I trust his word. And like David writes in the Psalms, I was young, now I'm old. But I've never seen the righteous forsaken Though they see begging for bread, but I've seen people who are trying to find God through their tradition or a casual relationship with God, wondering why things aren't working out. Now, for me, things have been difficult, yes, but somehow, some way, they always work out. Amen. Was it easy? No. Is it easy now? No. But it always works out. Why? Because God is our economy. Amen. God is our everything. God is the supplier. He is Jehovah Jireh. He will see and he will provide. He will see and he will provide. That's what this book says. And I have little interest, except for those who have honest questions, and say, well, Pastor, how does that work? 
I'd be willing to share with you. But I'm not looking to debate anybody. I'm going to waste time. I used to have a young, young fellow follow me on social media, and he always had some objection, not to me, but to preaching. And then he would refer to a tradition, one of the Christian traditions. Huh. One day I said, I've had enough of this. You want your tradition? Stick with it. Bow and genuflect and kiss rings and do whatever you want. Just don't bother me. So I just took him off. It's not that I don't love him. It's not that I don't care for him. It's not that I wouldn't pray for him if he contacted me. I would. I just don't want your nonsense. If that's what you want, go for it. Stick with it. I want Jesus. I want the word of God. I want to know the truth. I want to know what the truth is. And Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so we investigate. In our investigations, as I have given you this before too, we find out that so many of the problems that we have come from professing Christians. Well, you know, so-and-so said this. What's so-and-so got to do that his name isn't written in the book here somewhere? The vain traditions. Let me read this to you from Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. For you have heard of my... I'm going to translate for you so it's easier to hear. For you have heard of my manner of life in time past in the Jews' religion. Notice he calls it the Jews' religion. And he was a Pharisee. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation. Being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Killing Christians for tradition. Which, by the way, once again, read up, just start with the Borgia Popes. Start with the rest of the persecution of the Inquisition or various portions of the Inquisition. It may shock you. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, right, non-Jews, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode within 15 days. This is what we want. Not necessarily to have to go out into the wilderness, but to look into the word of God. It's been tried, it's been true. Someone has said that this is an anvil that has broken many hammers. Just as Jesus is a cornerstone that says, if you fall on him, it's bad. <laughs> if he falls on you, it's bad. Or in Don Quixote. When Sancho Panza says to Don Quixote, he says, you know, senor, picture being a glass pitcher. He says, whether the pitcher hits the stone or the stone hits the pitcher, it's bad for the pitcher. <laughs> the word of God is made for us to be strong. I want you to look at something, and I want you to turn there with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, and read what I think is one of the most provocative and engaging statements in all the Bible when it comes to preaching and teaching. Now this is Ezekiel we're reading about. Obviously he's a major prophet as we describe the term major and minor prophets. He's a major prophet. Now keep in mind as you're turning to chapter 33 that Ezekiel is preaching to the people who have already been taken captive by Babylon, first Babylon, then the Persians or Iran. They're already being punished for sinning against God. At that point, you would think that they were really, you know, really going to be obedient to the Lord. That's what we think. But read the book of the Revelation. It tells us that no matter how many judgments God has yet to bring upon the planet, they'll be gnashing their teeth at God. 
So again, don't listen to preachers who use an imagination. All we got to do, and there's one I'd just like to leave their names out. Sometimes it's not necessary to name them. When I read his book when it first came out, he talked about putting some decorations around the tree, some flora, some fauna, a little paint job, and you'll have a revival. Now, by the way, I'm all for fresh paint and keeping things neat and clean. But I never thought that when we redid this sanctuary, we would have a revival. People will come from all over the world to see this sanctuary. All right, not all over the world. They'll come from all over the city and we'll have a revival. That is amongst one of the stupidest things I've ever heard in my life. Let me tell you this. If we were meeting in a ditch somewhere and the sick were being healed and people were being saved and lives were being changed and people were getting off drugs and alcohol and whatever, they'll come, they'll find you. So in Ezekiel 33, they're already in captivity. And as you know, Ezekiel is an imposing figure. This man really hears from God. He's a prophet. I mean, a real prophet. Let's look at verse 30 and see what God has to say to him. Also, thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee, which it really means about you, by the walls and in the doors of the houses and speak one to another, everyone to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. So he's popular. Ezekiel is popular. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words. So far, so good. They're talking about his ministry. They're talking about this man speaks from God. you got to come hear him. And they do. And they come before Ezekiel as the people of God. Or today we'll just say they come as Christians. They come as the people of God. Let me read this again. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. That's astonishing. Why would you even want to talk about a preacher in the way they talk about him? We'll get a little bit more in just a second here. They're saying he's speaking from the Lord. But as far as putting it into practice, I go home and think about that. Listen. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after covetousness, their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come, God says, then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. A lot of things here that were preventing them from obeying God, mostly just simple unbelief. But what is, well, amazing? Is that a right word? Unique? Is that a right word? Ironic? That may be closer to it. Is that they're actually saying good things about Ezekiel. You got to come and hear this man speak. I mean, he speaks the words of the Lord. And they come and they sit and they're the people of God, or we'll just say Christians. And they come and they're listening. I don't know that Ezekiel was particularly eloquent as Apollos was in the New Testament. Eloquent orator. But they won't do what God says to do. So tell me, if you took a class in any subject, don't matter what it is, why would you go if you're not going to practice? Why would you go if you're not going to do it? And why would you go year after year, week after week, month after month, year after year, and never do it? It just doesn't make sense to me. Me, I'd rather say I'm not listening to Ezekiel. Not because he's not hearing from the Lord. I just don't want to obey the Lord. I'm not going to do what he says. And so with regard to tradition, I want you to listen very carefully. This is a poem. I don't really recite poetry a lot, but this one's worth listening carefully to. Sam Walter Foss, you may have heard or maybe you've read one of his poems 
on building a house by the side of the road, be a friend to man. Well, that's Samuel Walter Foss. He was a librarian. But in regard to tradition, wrong tradition now, he wrote this poem. At least that's how I'm applying it. The name of the poem is The Calf Path. Listen carefully. One day, through the primeval wood, a calf walked home as good calves should, but made a trail all bent, askew, a crooked trail, as all calves do. Since then, 300 years have fled, and, I infer, the calf is dead. But still he left behind his trail, and thereby hangs my moral tale. The trail was taken up next day by a lone dog that passed that way. And then a wise bellwether sheep pursued the trail or vale and steep and drew the flock behind him too, as good bellwethers always do. From that day, or hill and glade, through those old woods a path was made, and many men wound in and out, and dodged and turned and bent about, and uttered words of righteous wrath because t'was such a crooked path. But still they followed, did not laugh, the first migrations of that calf, and through this winding woodway stalked, because he wobbled when he walked. The forest path became a lane that bent and turned and turned again. This crooked lane became a road where many a poor horse with load toiled on beneath the burning sun and traveled some three miles in one. And thus a century and a half, they trode the footsteps of that calf. The years passed on in swiftness fleet. The road became a village street. And this, before men were aware, a city's crowded thoroughfare. And soon the central street was this of renowned metropolis. And men two centuries and a half trode in the footsteps of that calf. Each day a hundred thousand rout followed that zigzag calf about. And o'er his crooked journey went the traffic of a continent. A hundred thousand men were led by one calf near three centuries dead. They follow still his crooked way and lose one hundred years a day. For thus such reverence is lent to well-established precedent. A moral lesson this might teach where I ordained and called to preach. For men are prone to go it blind along the calf paths of the mind and work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and out and in and forth and back and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. They keep the path, the sacred groove along which all their lives they move. But how the wise old wood gods laugh who saw that first primeval calf. Ah, many things this tale might teach, but I'm not ordained to preach. That's a powerful poem. You could look it up, Sam Walter Foss. Basically saying a calf just rambled around, made a path, and from that time on, everybody followed it. Going in circles this way, that way, it becomes a major thoroughfare. And that, my friend, is the type of tradition we don't need. Because the way is straight. The word of God is straight. That's the path you want. When Jesus said, I am the way, he used the Greek word, hadas. And hadas means a path. 
I am the path, not the calf path. And I just want to say this to you. I ask you this question. Have any of you had the experience, maybe growing up, maybe even into your adulthood, of following traditions that you had no conception of what they even meant? Anybody had that experience? Just doing things and say, why do you do it? Well, I know, it's always done that way. Parents did it that way. In certain churches, usually when a new pastor comes along, well, I'll give you my story. When I came to Amsterdam 36 years ago, come September, I proposed we become a church of prayer. Now, nobody really objected to that until I said, we'll meet at 6 a.m. in the morning, <laughs> Monday through Friday. Do you realize I had, forgive me, ladies, but it was all women who came to me and they were outraged. My husband's getting up at 5 a.m. to meet you in prayer. I said, would you rather he's getting up to meet a woman? Well, no, but then what are you talking about? I tried to steer the course of the church into prayer and the preaching and reading of the word of God. And I was getting a resistance from the people in the seats. I told you, I got more anonymous letters. I have received, well, I don't still get them, but I did at one time. I got more anonymous letters from the people I was pastoring than from anybody else. What does that say? Yeah, I thought, and we still haven't ever done it. I thought one day, let's start a Sunday school. Wow, what an abomination that is. And then I had not only phone calls, I had people barging into my office. One guy, very histrionic, very dramatic. That's the only day that I have to eat breakfast with my family. I said, then eat breakfast with your family. But why are you bugging me? Not the precise words, but that was my attitude. You're coming in here to tell me that I shouldn't start a Sunday school in a church? Because you have to have breakfast? Eat your breakfast. Why are you bothering me? Because I didn't say you had to be there. Don't come. It's a church. These are professing Christians. They're singing the songs on the Sunday morning that we sang or sang. Really? And your wives are coming here to complain about a prayer meeting? Which again, there was no compulsion. I didn't say every single person who's here, we got your name, we got your number. You don't show up with lock on you and irons, you're coming. <laughs> I'm not running a cult. Nobody was forced. But the people complained, some complained about the prayer meeting. And we met every day, 6 a.m. for years. Five days a week. People complain about a Sunday school. And I'm saying that this is the very thing that I'm preaching against. This is that calf path. This is that we've never had a Sunday school. And the former pastor, the one before you, said, you understand what his name is? You understand what my name is? Because we're two different people. And now that I'm the pastor, you don't like where I'm going? You get off at the next stop. But don't you touch the wheel. Because as long as I'm the pastor, well, I'll do the driving. My dear friends, after all these years, I could tell you this. You will see things, if you don't have naturally curly hair, it will curl your hair if you knew the things that go on. I mean, ideas are okay, but you're going to oppose a Sunday school? All you have to say is, say, hey, Pastor, God bless you for what you're doing. I just won't be there. I would accept that. And that's what we have. We have the resistance of the Word of God to prayer. Prayer is so fundamental, it begs the description to say exactly how fundamental prayer is to the life of a church. I said this on the air just a few days ago, and uh, when I was younger, you know, you go to a church growth seminar, how to grow your church. And I tried all those methods, and yeah, you attract some people for a time, but they don't usually ever work out. And then one day it dawned on me, God had written in his word how to build a church. Wow. God actually put into the Bible how to build the church, his church. And how did he do that? First of all, in the book of Acts, he says, don't leave this city. 
Don't go anywhere and don't say a word until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. When they were filled with the Holy Spirit, it wasn't some kind of a circus. It was power. And not just in the healing and all of that, but in the preaching of the word, conviction fell. God put into his word how to build his church through prayer, making disciples, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And you take it from there. What a revelation that was. God had put in his word how to build his church. What a novel idea. In John chapter 12, we're going to finish with this. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. He was lifted up on the cross. He was lifted up in the resurrection. He says here, I'm saying for a preacher, you want to build the church? Lift Jesus higher. Lift him up for the world to see. The standard is not some tradition in some form of Christianity. The standard is, always was, and always will be Jesus. 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 Sweetest name I know. Fills my every longing. Keeps me singing as I go. It's Jesus. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, notice, unto me, himself. So when it comes to faith in the word of God, there's an illustration I want to bring to you. Now you realize from reading the Bible, there's some things in here that are very challenging. And challenging in a good way. When Jesus said, if two of you shall agree as touching anything on the earth, that they shall ask of the Father, I will grant it, I will do it. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. Now, <laughs> I've been around this a long time and it's still challenging me. That God has yet to show me more things and more things that I do not know. Through the life of prayer, through believing and preaching and so on. What he's written here in the book. And so there's a Christian conference. This is back in the 19th century as well. And one of the heads of the conference, the president, college president, he proposes this during the meeting. He says, I believe that we are on the verge of seeing many inventions. Now, this being the 19th century, as you know, those of you who studied the American Civil War, there were many inventions coming out during that period of time. Lots of things. And he says, I believe we are on the verge of seeing men fly. What's wrong with that? Well, somebody came along, some theologian, happened to be a bishop. He says, that's a heresy. The book says that angels alone were ordained to fly. The college president's name happened to be Wright as in W-R-I-G-H-T. And he had two sons, Wilbur and Orville. And the rest is history. Heresy! Angels alone are meant to fly. Even the book says, I'll fly away. The hymn, rather. I'll fly away, oh glory. That's what the book says now. You say, that's kind of fantastic. Now go read Strange Phenomena on these channel 150,000, wherever they are, you know, UFOs and aliens and Sasquatch and all that. There's a lot of unique things that are in the world, unsolved mysteries, but there's one in the book. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says that the Lord shall descend, sound of the trumpet, come up here, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall go up to meet them in the air. I think about that, and I just don't understand I happen to know, not from experience, but I just know from science that it's cold up there. <laughs> so how's God going to do? How's God going to do this? We'll have a committee. Anybody want to be on the committee? We're going to figure this out scientifically. How this is going to happen? See, that's what happens with some portions of theology. It becomes a philosophy. Well, God is able to change. I don't care how God does it. Maybe he'll give us wings. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I know this much. The book says the dead in Christ shall rise first, and after this, he says, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up 
together with them in the air. Have I seen it? No, but I've read it. Jesus is standing on the mount, speaking to the disciples, and as he's speaking, he just starts to go up. And so they're just looking. Last thing they see is his feet go in the clouds. That's quite a sight. Angels standing here saying, why are you looking up? Now that don't seem like a reasonable question to me. <laughs> but it wasn't designed to be reasonable. It was designed to be rhetorical. Why are you looking up? This same Jesus that you see, have seen, go up, shall so come in like manner. In the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. That's in this book. And I'm telling you, how close can we possibly be with all of this? I don't know that I should say this, but I'm going to say it. Here in our own little city, this perfect little world we live in here, in this city. I see a young man, one half of his head is shaved, the other half is pink, all hanging down loose. And don't get me wrong that I'm being critical of him. These are the people that I know that we're called to win to Christ. And I said, you know, dear God, what kind of world are we living in? But we're living in the times that Jesus talked about. So now we have to make a decision. Are we going to look at God through tradition? Are you going to make going to services with some kind of habit? Not a bad habit. It's a good habit. But it won't do you any good unless you do what God said to do when the message is finished. When the songs are done. When the prayer is over. That we go out and do what he says to do. Amen. Come out from them. If you understand the way I've phrased this. Understand the point I'm trying to make. Let's leave Christianity and follow Jesus. Let's follow the word. Let's follow prayer. Let's believe God to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Let God be God. Let God prove himself to be God. Let us testify of the great things God has done. And not make his life a simple tradition for which we make all of the promises to have no effect at all. You on board with me? Amen. Time for Truth is just a name. Had to be the name of the radio broadcast. So when we started this church, it's called Time for Truth. Let's go before the Lord and pray today. Because we were redeemed not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We were redeemed not with traditions. We were redeemed by that blood on that cross. God help us. Father, we bless you. And we know that the time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. You will come, receive us to yourself. Then you will come and you will judge the living and the dead. In my view and the way that I understand this is that this has been a test from the day you created Adam and Eve. For whatever eternity holds, this is the test. I pray that my friends, my brothers, my sisters sitting here, those that are watching, those that are listening by way of radio, that we will pass the test. As we're tempted and tested and trials and all types of things come our way. Help us, God. Help us today. Pour out of your spirit because you put into the book how to build a church. Built on prayer, built on discipleship, built on preaching and teaching and doing what you say. And then you will do, as it's also written in the book of the Acts, you will add to the church daily such as should be saved. And for this we bless you. Everything we need to know is contained within the pages of the Bible. Help us to be students of the Bible. But more so, help us not to be those type of people that sat before Ezekiel and said, man, you got to hear this guy talk. He gives the word of the Lord. But they never did what God said to do. Help us, God, in this ungodly age.
This is a truly adulterous generation. Help us, God, to stay separate. And we'll be able to see the words of that song come to pass in our life. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. He fills my every longing and keeps me singing as I go. Help us, Father God, to have that be our story. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. And we come to you because you're alive. And you're risen from the dead. And you're coming again. Hallelujah. Stand with me this morning, would you please? God is good all the time. God never changes. God is good all the time. Let's keep our eyes on Christ. And remind us during this week to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. Then remind us that if we truly love you, that we've got to love each other. I'll give you all the praise and glory for these things today. Jesus, my... Can you say amen today? Amen. Amen. Amen.